Hi everyone, welcome to episode three of the Early Education Show. It's great to be back with you. I'm Liam McNicholas. I'm Lisa Bryant. And I'm Leanne Gibbs. It's great to be back with you for another week. We, as usual, we're really grateful for everyone who's listening. We hope you're enjoying it and uh, sharing with your friends and colleagues in the sector. We're really hoping to reach as many people as possible with this. So we've got a regular structure for this week. So in a minute, I'm going to be throwing to Lisa, who's going to give us a little news uh, snippet of the week for a quick discussion before we get into our two main topics of discussion. And this week, we're going to be looking at sort of uh, Australia versus the world in terms of early childhood education provision. I'm particularly looking forward to chucking lots of data and graphs into that discussion as best as possible in an audio podcast. And then topic two is kind of sort of going to be a bit of a part two from last week. We talked a lot about the workforce strategy. And this week, where I sort of summarised it as where to for educators now. There's a lot that's changing and a lot that's uh, still continuing to be challenging for early childhood educators in our profession. And we're sort of going to talk about the current situation and what's sort of ahead for people. It's a fairly vague introduction, but we'll get into that a bit more specifically when we get into that topic. And then uh, all three of us, Lisa, you've prepared one this week, I hope, which is... Yes, I did. I was a good girl. Lisa, gold star. We're going to be just giving a recommendation for something to watch or see or listen to or read um, that's come up to us this week. And then we'll um, we'll wrap up and uh, thank Mm -hmm. another wonderful, lovely person who's left a review on our iTunes page. So... um, we will get cracking into it. So, Lisa, what's the sort of snippet news of the week you're going to bring us today? Look, the news of the week has to be that there is now a childcare comedy. We've got a web series, like a TV show, set in a childcare centre. It's called Little Acorns, and the ABC headed the story that they wrote about it that was that Little Acorns shows women behaving badly. And I must say, you know, the picture that the ABC chose to use to publicise the thing has this semi-naked, quite nice-bodied male childcare worker with a, a female childcare worker in a beautiful turquoise polo shirt checking him out. That's kind of about the level of where the series exists. The first episode is up and it's pretty bad from my point of view. Have you two managed to have a look at it? Uh, yes, Lisa, I've had a, an opportunity to look at this um, Academy Award-winning mini-series that seems to be uh, starting up. And I, I don't love it. I, I, I actually think it's dreadful. But I also think that uh, when you get these things up, they tend to be rooted in some real issues. And I think some of the real issues there are things like waiting lists, um, educators being given the sack, and uh, people, you know, really trying to put their best foot forward as educators in services and and uh, reaching some pretty big barriers. So I, I don't like it, but I think it's an interesting uh, social comment. I think I Sarah. as well, I watched, a, I, so I'll line up, I watched the first half of the first one and then found it too hard to go on. It was, and we had a bit of an email chat about, so Lisa sort of flicked it through to us, we had a bit of a chat offline uh, Leanne raised the really good question of, you know, well, isn't this just the satire that we all kind of like, like we, Utopia and Frontline and all those kind of shows that we like? And and you're not wrong, Leanne. But, and I sort of, I think I threw my hands up and I said, look, I don't like it. I don't know why I don't like it. I've had to think about it since this afternoon. And there was a little bit of Facebook commentary. I sort of saw a few comments of people that were talking about it. And um, 
at someone making that point as well. I think for me, uh, the there, there are a couple of issues. I think satire, in my view, of those sort of things, only really works in positions of power. So you can you can satirise and and sort of bring down a peg people in power, uh, so politicians and journos and those kind of things, which is why those shows I think are particularly good because they're, they're people that you know can probably stand to have the joke made of them and they're in positions of power. I, early childhood educators for me just aren't there. I don't, I don't know if it's simple for me and I could be wrong. I just, I think it's, we're not, the sector is not ready. It's not in a position of entrenched power where we can afford to make fun of it yet. I don't think, I think, yeah, I'm having trouble articulating it. It is, it is a, it was a uh, big Liam, cringe I factor. I think you're, you're really right. To me, it kind of missed the mark in the same way as that show about Julia Gillard at home, remember mm. the one that was done with actors, Miss the Mark. This had, a, you know, the first episode had things like a director cowering in a, pub, a cubby house so that she didn't have to talk to a parent. Hmm. You know, I just think, look, it's hard work being a director. It's hard work being a parent, you know, talking to parents. That's actually not funny. No, but don't you see that it's brought that issue out? Like, I think I agree with you about the the power um, imbalance there, but I think it, it it brings that those issues out. I I don't like it. I don't think it's good for the sector. But then again, maybe it just squeezes some of those issues out and makes them a, a little bit more public. And yeah, I think, well, yeah. I th- I think just wait until we see what it does to every male educator who once again has to face that glare of they're only in it yeah. you know, because it's a female-dominated industry and, you know, yeah, I don't... Yeah, and that's, that's exactly right. And I think that there will be some places where this should just not go. It just shouldn't go there. So, <laughs> yes, I agree. So I guess we could maybe touch base. And I think someone made the point, and I'm prepared to reflect on it and challenge it myself, is that uh, it's possible to just be too close to it. So for... And I wonder for, mm-hmm. you know, using the Fantastic Frontline as an example, and if people, it's a bit of an older show, but if people haven't seen it, go, oh, God, it is still so good. I wonder if, you know, journos at the time couldn't watch it. It was too cringeworthy. It was too Oh, constant. I had a journo friend, exactly, Liam. Yeah. I had a journo friend who, who just said it's not even funny. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't, I don't find it funny. So funny. And it's like cognitive dissonance because I can see what they're trying to do. I actually like that style of humour. I found nothing funny. No, and I just wonder... I'm scrambling for some sort of social justice, you know, reason. It may just be that it's too close to home, and maybe it is really good. And I just, I can't. I'm too close to it. I guess I'm, I'm prepared to, to think about it, and maybe I'll come back to it later. But yeah, at the but moment, you know what they say? They say if uh, it doesn't matter what they say, so long as they're talking about you. So maybe this is a great opportunity. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's the whole series is up. I think so. I think we'll include a link to. Um, to the YouTube channel and probably to the article on ABC, which I saw as well. But um, and I guess people make up their own minds. Maybe um, and I don't know particularly something that could be very easily leveled to me is that I, I just don't like fun. I've got no time for fun anymore. Try to take it way too seriously. So <laughs> prove us wrong, people. Prove us wrong. But um, we'll get on to the first main topic for tonight. Um, and like I said, it's sort of we we wanted to have a bit of a chat so about sort of Australia's position on early childhood education versus where things are going in the world. We've had a lot of, um, we'll try and avoid this and Lisa and Leanne will have to rein me in occasionally a bit of this from being too much of a boring data sort of driven exercise in boredom. But 
in general might you know I, I I read a lot of this stuff and I'm very interested in sort of a lot of the reporting that comes out in an international context. There, you can I think you can accurately say there's a general shift worldwide towards a much better focus on early childhood education and particularly. Um, below the age of four and five, there's this big shift towards recognising investment in that space is useful and worthwhile, and governments sort of across the across the world are doing a lot better that, with the significant exception of Australia. So, although Australia has the National Partnership Agreement for preschool in the year before school, uh, and does that relatively well, before that we have a really low scorecard. So, I might drop some of the data on that a little bit later, but. I might just turn to, and maybe maybe you, Leanne, first. Just, and I guess the, you know, the, we'll, we'll start with the obvious question: Why do you think that is? Uh, yeah, I was having a good long think about this and looking at where other countries were making um, greater advances, and a lot of the detail which you're probably going to pull out is in the Starting Strong reports and yes. and about why countries actually invest in early childhood education, and a lot of it has started for the very same reasons that it has started here, which is about, um, you know, about investing in uh, people returning to work, mostly women, um, investing in uh, the, the idea that if you have great childcare, people go back to work. So that's been the starting point. But probably the big wedge here is that it is all about um, the market being open. And that's another part of the discussion that we can have. But because there is such a strong market that that has kind of pulled us back a lot because it has um, restricted the engagement with early childhood education. So I suppose that, you know, in lots of ways we sort of think, oh, our advocacy work hasn't maybe been successful, but it's not, it isn't actually that. It's much more about how governments have invested in it in the first place. What about you, Lisa? I mean, I think that's all... Entirely right. And I guess, Lisa, from your experiences, maybe more of a, you know, a bit of a window outside the sector. So that's a really interesting point Leanne's raised about the advocacy. And I've been probably a bit brutal about Australian advocacy and early childhood in the past. Do you do you think that's true, Lisa? Is it, we, we, do we beat ourselves up a bit as advocates? Yeah, but I, th- I think probably deservedly. Like, I just look at, I read a lot of stuff from America and England and just mm. see how much is, you know, is coming, what's happening in those countries and how much that, you know, like everyone, seem, you know, from, uh, you know, their elected representatives to their businesses seem to be saying early education is the way to go. And we're just not there at all. And I lay that you know, simply down to how we organise things within Australia so that our states and territories are responsible for education and our federal government is responsible for everything else and, unfortunately, childcare fits into that category. So it's really up to our states to do anything about early education and it's, and that just gives the federal government an out. They don't really have to do anything because, oh, no, education's a state mm-hmm. responsibility. And so they see early education as something that's the state's, you know, something the state should do. And I think that's why you see organisations like the Productivity Commission arguing that there's a very real gap between childcare and early education because they know that if you started to look at childcare, as they call it, 
as part of early education, then they'd have to start talking about funding it and doing something in that space. And I think you're right. And I think Australia, for a very small country in terms of population, we've made it as difficult and complex as possible to be doing this stuff. So we do have obviously the separate, separate state and territories, but we also have federal money going in, but states sort of handling the regulation and issues around it. But I think it's worth just briefly, like the stats... The statistics are actually fairly shocking when you look at them, and and due to the nature of sort of international data, there's you know they they said the, the range fluctuates from about sort of 2011 to 2014, but you know in two particular, and I'll make sure I link to these sort of um, in the podcast show notes, but uh, enrolment of children in the age of three in early childhood education and the and expenditure rates, so the amount the government spends as a percentage of GDP, which is gross domestic product and is a sort of commonly accepted figure for how governments spend money. Australia is almost dead last in both of those. And this is in the most recent uh, report that Lisa, uh, sorry, that Leanne mentioned at the start, the, stroke, the Growing Strong report. It's it's not only that they're well below sort of the average of the you know, developed economies, is that they're they're almost dead last. And it's, it's almost staggering to look at it with the, with, you know the hoo-ha that goes on around how important this is, and and it's interesting. My default position is usually as you know a lefty, you know hippie, crazy person is to sort of bash conservative governments. But it's really interesting, and Leanne, I might you know it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this. That the two sort of countries I've looked at most closely in the lead up to recording today is um, the UK and New Zealand, both of whom, in terms of either significant expansions of. Um, access to early childhood or at least, you know, embedding and, and continuing existing structures were both, you know, conservative right-wing governments. And so I don't know if it's just a left-right issue. Well, and I, I think the, the whole thing is the way that governments invest. I think that's the... I, I agree. I don't know that it is a left-right issue, but I think we've got... Um, it, it seems to me that, that our governments want to invest... Uh, only in things like mining and oh, better be careful um, those sorts of areas without and the investment in early childhood is not necessarily an investment in early childhood it's actually in many ways it's an investment in a business incentive program mm. for um, the market to expand so you know I think that in in thinking about that investment is it really an investment in education so I I, I just scratch my head because I don't grasp why when we've been so clever with things like we were the first country in the world to link an accreditation system with um, subsidies. So, you know, we had a great foundation if we were going to expand the market um, and we've actually got a great quality framework. So we've got, we've got the foundations for quality, but it's just like we can't push ourselves over to the next stage where we're actually investing in education and keeping children central to that argument. And I think it's interesting looking at, so we've just had an election in Australia, so we've been able to, the, obviously the benefits of that, uh, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum and regardless of you know whether you're happy who won or not, is that you at least get very concrete policy platforms from everyone involved. And um, I wrote a little bit about this on, uh, I think on Twitter or possibly on my blog about um, we obviously, uh, amongst the three of us, have our concerns about the Jobs for Families package and we, we don't want this, uh, which I, I would probably be tempted to do, which we spend every week saying how bad that package is. You, Lisa and Leanne have very kindly prevented that, so you can have them to thank listeners. But um, 
we sort of knew what the, the current Although government... Although we actually agree with you. Yeah, 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 which is fine. We just don't want to talk about it every week. I, t- I totally get it. But um, so as well as knowing what the government's package is and whether you agree or disagree, we know it's there. We also then got the Labor uh, opposition package and, you know, the Greens package, as you know, one of the, the, bigger, the bigger minor parties. And it's interesting to me that neither of them, and even the Greens, who are sort of the most sort of left-wing, you know, let's um, tax everyone and spend the money, didn't to me have this comprehensive here is we need to nail the child education needs to be moved away from the market-based model or the greens did have some some commentary around this they basically in in my view were both responses to the government's package so they weren't sort of reforming packages of themselves they were responding to we don't like this package here is how we're going to tweak it to 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 make it better so i mean part of me gets a bit depressed and worried that we're we're not even having the conversation about what it should look like. We're sort of just saying that, well, we all mm-hmm. agree in different ways, shapes or forms that what's working, that what's currently in place probably isn't working for whatever reason. And for, you know, conservative people might be, well, we're wasting too much money on early childhood. For um, for progressive um, campaigners for education, it would be it's not, you know, it's not producing the outcomes, it's not allowing universal access. But no one in Australia to me is saying from 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 woe to go, here is what we need to do to get this right. Um, and I don't know what the question is there to either of you, but what, what's you know, what would you like to see someone coming forward and 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 presenting in Australia? <laughs> Gosh, I, I think if Lisa and I spoke at exactly the same time, we'd say exactly the same thing. So Lisa, <laughs> you, you say, if it, but just one thing, if if I had, you know, if I could do whatever I wanted with that policy, first of all, I'd take that policy, put it in that um, eject chair that you know you see on one of those, and press the buzzer, and then just see it flip backwards <laughs> and disappear. But um, obviously, you have to have something to replace it. So I just think universal access for early childhood education and childcare zero to school starting high quality and that's and it would cost a mozza so i'm going to play devil's ad missed out one thing leanne (laughs) delivered by well-paid educators and early childhood teachers that's just intrinsic that's intrinsic well and here's the thing so i'm gonna i'm gonna play what's not exactly devil's advocate i think it's probably the pragmatic approach which we need to think about so look i entirely agree and would you know would say yeah, yeah yeah absolutely yes so the current situation for early education in Australia is it is a market-based model that um, I'll, I'd have to check the exact figures, but it's something like over 70% of services are private, not-for-profit. Is it reasonable to think that that's likely to happen anytime yeah, soon? Sorry, Liam, you mean for-profit. Sorry, sorry, private for-profit, sorry. Is it reasonable to think we're going to, that that's, that anything's going to suddenly change us soon? And and sorry, I'm, I'm now asking the longest question I demand. I think one of the things that makes the difference in terms of looking at Australia versus overseas, a lot of the um, the overseas countries never went down that route of the market-based model. It was a really poor decision. And unfortunately, with Labor and Liberal, so uh, Paul Keating, the Prime Minister in the 90s, um, got rid of the uh, the direct sort of funding of um, community-based services. And then John Howard, <coughs> sorry, John Howard entrenched the market-based model. Are we... Are we too deep in the quagmire? Like what, the, the... Liam, I don't think we are because, like, if you look at countries like Finland, they actually provide some of their guaranteed early education through private sector enterprises, right? Of course, they demand that they be the same quality as the not-for-profit ones, but it is possible to have a mixed market model and still have universal access. I think the thing that 
stops us having any sort of universal access is is that divide between education and care. If you got rid of that, if you, you know, managed to look at education as starting from year zero, then I think regardless of the model, you would be able to guarantee that right to every child to actually have access to early education from zero or from when the family wanted the child to have it. Well, I think you're probably right. And probably one of the things we could look to would be um, the the primary and secondary education system where there is a public provision for that, but there are also private schools and if people choose to spend that money. So, you know, the corollary in early childhood would be, well, you know, in my view, there should be universal access to high quality early childhood education and care. If you want to spend a huge amount of money and have a service that will do yoga or deliver coffee to your car on the way in or make it so, there's, you know, there's, you, don't, you don't have to even set foot in the centre, go nuts. But you, you're paying for that yourself and that there is this provision for early childhood education for everyone, which is free to access, is universal access, and it's separate to that system. But the, the big difference is that you can't actually make a profit <clears throat> ostensibly um, from a private school. So that would require a massive change to the landscape. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's probably where and it, it's, I don't want to end on a sort of too downbeat a note, or either I think, you know, it probably is a bit dire, but I think I don't know if even in Australia we're having that. We've owned up to the, the challenge of that discussion, which is, yeah, this is, if we really are advocating for what we say we're advocating for, we're going to have to start putting some solutions on the table because it, it is a mm. huge change we're proposing. And it'd be, um, mm. yeah, it'd be interesting to see, you know, from from listeners, if you'd, you know, share with us, you know, in terms of your own thinking on this or, you know, or linking to others. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it there's a big risk Australia's going to be left behind in this big sort of change that's sweeping the world. Look, even if you just look at our access for three-year-old and four-year-olds, like, um, yeah, New Zealand got 20 hours of free early education for all three-year-olds in 2007. England got it for all three-year-olds in 2005, and now they're going down to two-year-olds. You know, like other countries all understand that three is a... Three-year-olds are really critical to get them in, in at that stage, not just one year before school. So, well, what are the participation rates like? Because the access is one thing, but what about the participation rates? They're they're equally high. Yeah, because when it doesn't cost, like we're talking about course, countries that yeah. provide yeah. more or less free. It's not just you know like us where we guarantee children the right for fifteen hours if their parents can pay a fortune for it. Yeah. Mm. yeah, so this I'm going to sh- well, show off. So I, I have the data in front of me. So the UK, the rate of uh, enrolment from age three is at uh, ninety, just over ninety percent. So it looks at about ninety two percent. Yeah, and by comparison, oh, let, let's play a fun game. What do you think it is in Australia? Fifty five percent. You're way off, Lisa. It's down, 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 isn't it? down, down, yeah, down, yeah, down. Oh, 19? sorry. Does this include New South Wales in it? Yeah, it would be way lower. <laughs> I won't keep you in suspense. It's less than twenty percent. It looks like it's yeah. about eighteen wow. to nineteen percent. It is. Yeah. When I say Australia's at the bottom of the pack, it's 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 staggering the difference between Australia and places like the UK and Norway and yeah, it's it's a big discussion. And I mean, I think the other thing we have to do is get better data as well. 
because we just don't do data very well <coughs> in in terms of gathering it. I mean, it is low, definitely. Yeah. I think the Productivity Commission has actually agreed <laughs> with you there today, Leanne, but they're suggesting that that's a reason why funding shouldn't increase for both schools and early education until we have the better data. And I think we'll have to, uh, that will definitely be a topic we will be bringing up in the next few weeks. But um, that's actually a yeah, really good point. I think the data is king, as we say. We can't make this just, you know, these sort of heavy decisions about where we're heading unless we have the right data. And we'll definitely be devoting some time to the, uh, the evidence-based report that's just come out. But yeah. we might move I've on. I've got one we, more, oh, one, oh, one please, fun Leanne. fact, sorry. Leanne, go for before it. We go on. I did find that in my little bit of research, that um, the Fijian constitution actually um, is has embedded in it early childhood education for every child in Fiji. So there you go. It's wow. in their constitution. Hmm. Wow. Think, yeah, I know. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. <laughs> Whereas in Australia, we are not even entirely wanting to follow the uh, United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child that we've decided to sign up to, but that is most definitely a discussion for another time, which I'm very looking forward to having. But um, thank you both. We might move on now to, like I said, sort of part two of our discussion last week, and we did, you know, in sort of the, you know, the social media we shared it on, I think we had a lot of commentary on the position of educators in um, the sector today and, you know, the loss of professional development funding and the, the challenge and difficulty of accessing rigorous quality professional development. So um, the sort of heading I've got for this topic is sort of where to for educators. Um, you know, we've got a lot of sort of things swirling around at the moment. So obviously the uh, the professional support coordinator is no more. The long daycare professional development fund is ending July at the end of June 2017 and we can safely presume the government will not be extending that. We have... Um, what uh, we're recording this, uh, the media sort of broke that there's going to be a pretty small scale, but still a really sort of interesting and, and new process. There's going to be a, a strike in a number, so, so there's going to be a number of strikes across centres in New South Wales and Victoria, um, uh, which is challenging that issue we raised before, which is low pay and low respect uh, for early childhood educators. So I guess, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll kick it open with a more general discussion. So sort of thinking about our chat last week and sort of moving forward, Lisa, what, you know, what are you sort of particularly most thinking about in terms of, you know, educators and their professional identity and their professional development right now? Um, this is a bad day to ask me for this one, <laughs> Liam. Um, anyone that follows me on social media will know that I've been banging on about the Queensland Child Care Alliance, which is the for-profit peak organisation in, in Queensland, who've decided that Thursday of this week is Early Childhood Educators Day. And they raised this day, they started this day six years ago to raise an awareness and support for the valuable work of the early years educators in educating and caring for tomorrow's leaders. Oh, sorry, it's Wednesday, not Thursday. I've even got the date wrong. <laughs> but they've got a website and SEEK has been busy promoting the day on their behalf um, today on social media. And the things that they have said, uh, how we should celebrate Early Childhood Educators Day is by having a high tea, a barbecue, a picnic or a mini show day with games and face painting. Have a superheroes for super educators themed day. You can decorate your service with superhero party decorations. Or you can 
share with educators some of the positive feedback received from parents. You can place a red carpet in the entrance to the service to make a walk of fame, or you can decorate the walls with gold stars and pictures of each educator. This really makes me sick. One of the best ways to celebrate early childhood educators is to pay them reasonable money, but that isn't even suggested there. There's nothing that suggests, you know, truly appreciating educators. It's like belittling everything that educators do on a day-to-day basis. I appreciate the thought of appreciating educators, but the, the, the suggestions of how you go about it just are driving me a bit insane. What's well, really interesting, Leanne, I don't know if you want to leap in first, so, but uh, Lisa, you sent that to us in an email earlier in the day, I deliberately did not respond because I wanted to save the discussion for today because I think I'm going to slightly surprise you. Now, Leanne and Lisa know me sort of well enough, but for anyone else, my nickname as a child was Old Man McNicholas. I was born as about a 40-year-old, so I'm now approximately 70 in terms of my outlook and enjoyment of life. I have no time for fun. I have no time for parties. I deliberately don't tell anyone my birthday at work so there's no hint of a celebration. I... Look, yeah, I can't stand the, and these sort of cliched celebrations. Lisa, I don't know. Though part of me goes, yeah, I get the point and I don't like the specific suggestions you make. And I think to be completely fair to ACA, they are listed as just suggestions. So I think it's more about, you know, finding a way to do it if you want. I'm kind of, part of me goes, look, it's not for me, but I wonder for, for look, maybe it works for some educators. And I think at the point where anything that celebrates and maybe encourages some sort of engagement from the community in terms of celebrating early childhood educators, I don't know, maybe I'm prepared to give this one a pass, which, again, making me slightly, is a bit strange. I know you're going to think I've gone insane, but I don't, I don't know. I think one, maybe with this one I'm prepared to give it a pass. I'm going to say, look, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Maybe it might be interesting to hear from people, Liam, about what, what they do mm. feel about it because I think it is about... Um, it's about how you individually take on yeah. the. Um, like I, I completely hear you, Lisa, but I, I also wonder that similarly is for some people that is important, but it doesn't make the need for better pay um, any less important. That's for sure, and it doesn't. And certainly, that should be one of the strategies that that's mentioned there. Giving your every educator a pay increase tomorrow. That would be the way to go. <laughs> Definitely. Before it becomes an episode of Little Acorn. To, to me, it's just, yeah, look, I am a bit shocked at you, Liam, but to me it's just, it's patronising, you know, like let's give red carpets gold stars, like gold stars for an educator. Oh, they're bad enough when they're given to children, let alone to educators, you know. Well, they're far worse, it's, and that's the thing. I would be I would be militant about that kind of thing happening with children because I think you're right. I think it is disrespectful. I think... I don't know. The way I read it, I think I look and Lisa, I read your email. I was geared up to have exactly the reaction you thought I was going to have, and then someone just went, oh, "Do you know what? Look, I, I don't know if this makes if this works for some people. If it doesn't, because I think the other thing, look, Lisa, I'm, Liam, I had to I had to rethink that at one stage when Leanne did something uh, once, and mm. that she organised a, a, a an event for educators at Parliament House, and I was going, "Why would you do it at Parliament House?" I couldn't understand it at all until I saw the pride that each of those educators had 
as they walked into Parliament House, that they were finally, you know, in a position which to them represented power in some way, shape or form, and they felt that it gave recognition for what they're doing. So I, I kind of get what you're saying, but I just think for this to be coming from, to me it's the same when I see unions like United Voice um, partnering with service owners to raise, you know, the, um, the need for educators to be paid more. And I always just think they're private owners. They can choose to pay their educators more. Well, yeah, I think I think that's true in general, Lisa. And I think, and, and again, I feel like I'm playing devil's advocate a lot this episode. I think, look, you're not wrong, but I think there's also it's not it's not exactly that simple. So I think people could, of course, make the decision to do that. But given how the system works, that obviously would either have you know a flow-on effect to other areas of that organisation or business, or directly to fees for families. It's not like that. It is the eternal struggle and I think and you know at my most paranoid and most suspicious it's a struggle the government is happy to leave us with because then they they're sort of evolved absolved of any responsibility where yes we want to pay people as much as we possibly can but we also can't charge you know families exorbitant well some organizations choose to but we in general if we look at this you know it's assuming everyone's acting in the best motives it's not entirely that simple I think that's probably where I Go look. Is, is the early childhood educator day likely to solve the problems for educators? No. Is it necessarily a bad thing in and of itself? For me, it's not something I'd want to you know do or take part in. But for some, it, it may be the best that can happen at the moment. I don't know. Am I completely naive? That's pretty sad if it's the best that can happen. Yeah, I feel bad even as I just said. Look, it's clearly not the best that can happen. I think if people, my recommendation is look, if people want to take part in Early Childhood Educator Day, and unfortunately this podcast will come out after that day, but you know, in terms of future ones or other celebrations, is look at, obviously look at, and then sort of in terms of whatever can happen for wages, but look at, um, you know, meaningful and valuable and respectful ways that the work of those early childhood educators can be. Um, can be looked at and can be valued because I think it's I mean it's interesting for me we are and we sort of talked about the, the pay equity case that is up so there is you know at the moment a very formal legal mechanism that's taking place to um, hopefully have a positive result for early childhood educators what will happen after you know even if Fair Work Australia makes the call that the pay is too low it's still a bit of a open-ended ball game what will happen after that because the government you know, can choose not to fund those wages or and just leave it with um, with organisations, which would create a pretty big problem. But um, the uh, part of the discussion, I think, is around, I think probably the thing that probably most annoys you, Lisa, and to me, extent, is the gimmicky part of it. But we see that all the time, don't we? And and it's interesting. And I, I you know, I'm a I'm a member of United Voice. I support the Big Steps campaign. I didn't enjoy the Dave Hughes you know, day in an early childhood educator because to me I think it trivialises it a bit and, and is played for a bit of a joke. As soon as Dave Hughes is involved, everything is inevitably going to be a joke. The argument that was made to me was, well, look, this gets us huge. Um, it gets huge, you know, uh, I was completely lost the word, but it gets, you know, recognition and means that more people will be thinking about this issue um, than, than before and I kind of just need to get over the gimmicky part of it and that's part of advocacy and that's part of getting these issues on the on the sort of air. But what do you two think about that? Um, well, I was with a group of students last Friday who were talking about exactly that topic and they loved it. 
they, they thought it was. See, I think I'm just a cranky old man. This is why I'm, I'm starting to check <laughs> well, myself a bit. I, I think you don't like celebrity. I think that's the thing. And I think what 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 this I, I think it gave for those students who are all um, early childhood teachers in in training. Yeah, they felt like it was giving a focus and it was really bringing a, a bit of a shining a light on the work that they did. So they thought it was fantastic and that he actually said, you know, he couldn't believe how hard it was or how low it was paid. So I, I think, you know, again, it comes back to it doesn't matter what they're saying so long as they're talking about you. <laughs> maybe maybe that's it. Maybe that is the key to it. And I, I understand the gimmicky stuff. There's been so many things over my career in early childhood where I've just been, you know, cringing and, and dying over it. But I recognise that other people aren't, that it actually is a source of um, enjoyment or inspiration for them. Yeah, I, th I think I kind of agree with you there. I think, you know, there's bits of it that annoy me, um, but I do think that, you know, United Voice have over the last few years created a really wide understanding in the community or in parts of the community that early childhood educators are unemployed and that that is a gendered, gendered problem, you know, and I think hats off to them for doing that, you know. No matter how you do it, whether it's with celebrities or whatever, you have to start somewhere. You've got to, you know, do some level of uh, raising people's understanding that, first of all, there is a problem and, second, why the problem exists, and I think that's what they've actually managed to do. Yeah, and I think, and I, I think that it's... Sorry. No, after you, Leanne. You go, Leanne. Uh, well, I just think that it leads to this. There's a, a really big issue that sits underneath all of this in that if we if we don't start pushing for, you know, if we, I mean, we're all pushing for it, for higher uh, wages and all of those aspects of it, and we see people leave the sector or we see that we can't attract people to the sector, We'll just have less and less educators, less early childhood teachers, and that opens up a door to change regulations as well and yeah. to and, and to undermine the regulations that are there. Because if we can't find if we can't find people who are qualified because we can't pay them, you know, they're not there, then this is this is where regulations are, are, are sort of eaten away more and more. So I guess I, I sort of think whatever it takes, let's just do it. And I think as well, I mean, I'm the first to acknowledge it because I think it always has to be that I'm in the very fortunate position where I can have this point of view and, um, you know, I have a very secure role in a, you know, leadership position. I don't do that work in directly in centres anymore. I work, you know, with, you know, four fantastic centres with amazing educators every day, but I'm also acutely aware that I'm not doing that work day in, day out now and, and it's all very well for me to sit and go, well, I don't like the way they're doing it, it's not my cup of tea, and that's actually, you know, fairly ridiculous. But I think the point for me generally is I wonder, because I think there's two discussions for me, and I think people will make the practical decision about which is more valuable at a given time, but there's obviously the, the nuts and bolts of people are hideously underpaid. It is a gender-based issue. They are underpaid because they are women doing what's seen as women's work, and that just as a nuts and bolts issue needs to be solved, and whether that's done through... The, the, the fair work case or through, you know, collective activism, etc. Um, the second parallel thing for me is the, the, the rising standards of professionalism and professional identity mm -hmm. and professional value for the sector. So in my ideal world, which I'm, you know, privileged that I can spend my time pontificating about, those would happen in parallel. 
but that's probably not the case. Probably we, we, we can solve the nuts and bolts issue and if we need to, you know, do things that aren't my cup of tea, and to be fair, most things aren't, uh, then then that's, you know, probably, you know, that if, if that leads to them solving the nuts and bolts issue, then pull your head in, Liam, is it? I think that's basically where we're at, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Liam, I just want to give one cap at the end of that. It's not just, but I don't think it's just because it's a gendered workforce as much as it clearly is. I also think that our wages in our sector are, exist because of how we view children in our sector. Yeah. Not in our sector, in our society. In mm. If we actually, you know, um, valued children more, we'd value those that educated for them more. And, and maybe that brings us full circle, Lisa, to what we started on tonight, which was why don't we invest? And I think that that's got to be a core component of it because other things are far more attractive in this country and and that investment in children is not. I think that's actually good. And it was something I was going to bring up in that first topic, but um, in the interest of trying to keep this short, although I think I'm giving up all pretenses as a half-hour podcast now and it'll be as, as long as it needs to have these important <laughs> discussions, I think. When I was sort of talking about that left-right issue before, I should have gone into a bit more detail because I think one of the things that I, in my you know time spent in the sector, I think my view is occasionally, I'd be really interested to hear your two's view on this, is that Australia is fundamentally a very conservative country. So the dominant views, despite the fact of who's you know in government at what particular bit of time, change comes really slowly. So we're seeing this in the you know marriage equality debate, which is you know it's just insane to me we're even having this discussion. Let's do it and get it over with. But that we we change really slowly. Our view of the how society should function is really very a bit at the fundamental level ultra conservative. And I think what this comes down to is that anything I think there's this undercurrent in Australia that anything we think is going to give rights and more sort of value and rights to children is going to take away from parents and that that sort of very old-fashioned parenting mum stays at home and dad goes out to work and comes in. Oh, and you're absolutely I, right. Yeah. You are so right. We're, I'm always told, you know, like we're all told as journalists, never read the comments under your articles. <laughs> but, of course, everyone does do it anyway. And whenever I write about childcare, you know, for Fairfax or something, I get so many people who say, why do we need teachers to look after children? My mum and dad didn't have it a degree or my mum didn't have a degree. And then you get this whole other range of people that just say parents should be looking after children, mothers should be at home looking after children. And it's kind of like, wow, okay, we'll just go back to the 60s for a bit, shall we? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> That's exactly what those comments are coming from. And I think it's a good point that, you know, it, that you don't read them, Lisa, because they're just, they're, they're the insight. But I think that yeah. that's when you don't read any comments around um, racism, around uh, marriage equality, all of those sorts of things, because <laughs> that's where you, that all of those comments do come out. Well, I think that's a lovely bit of symmetry to wrap up our two main topics for tonight. Thanks. So thanks, Lisa and Leanne. I think that was a yeah, a very a very interesting discussion. I think these these topics that make us sort of um, scratch our heads are the ones we have to continue having in early childhood. Um, so we're under our sort of recommendations part. So I sort of um, check this out for the week. So I might um, steal the thunder and start first. Um, I know I recommended a podcast last week. I'm going to do it again this week. So I don't know if it's my go-to is to recommend a specific podcast, but I'm going to at least do that this week and we'll see you next week. Um, 
I don't know if anyone's familiar with Sir Michael Marmot. He is an incredible um, exit of civil servant and uh, health and well-being advocate from the UK. He is he's you know I can't remember. He's been around for a long, long time. He's the head of the world. Um, I want to say the World Health, or, no, no, World Medical Organization. Oh, I've, I've probably got that wrong, and I'm now feeling bad. But he's in Australia at the moment, conducting what are called the Boyer Lectures, um, which is a series, a, a lecture series on all sorts of um, uh, aspects of health, well-being, and early childhood development. So the first episode of those is up, and it's not specifically focused on early childhood. It's focused on sort of health and well-being, but he doesn't mention early childhood education. And the next episode is going to be all about early childhood development. He's a really engaging and interesting speaker. The podcasts are fantastic. They're mm. about an hour. So I'll include the link, but um, you just need to basically search for Boyer Lectures, B-O-Y. Yeah, and I'd um, yeah, they it was a re- the first one was a really great list, and I'd really recommend um, yeah people get on that for a far more serious and uh, British accent accented version of our chats. <laughs> yeah, what about you, Lisa? Look, mine's a real nothing as exciting as that, Liam. It's a real nerds thing. Um, mine's the early childhood and childcare in summary papers. These are bought out every quarter by the federal government. They're really hard to find on the Department of Education's website, so I think you'll put a link in with the podcast, Liam. But they just give you all this fascinating, gorgeous data. <laughs> okay, I know, I'm boring. Um, Lisa, you're making us sound uncool. Can you stop? <laughs> Well, okay, you know, all this really cool data, (laughs) like how many children attended approved childcare, yeah? So um, they're always a bit behind, so we're still up to the September quarter of of 2015 is the most recent one, but we had 1.26 or 1.3 million children attended childcare in the quarter. there was 859,000 families um, had at least one child in care. You know, there was 17, almost 18,000 childcare services in Australia. That kind of, you know, makes those kind of figures makes it seem like maybe it is possible to actually do something about access for three-year-olds, access for two-year-olds and, in fact, educators' wages because it's so many people across Australia that we touch as a sector. Fantastic. Well, I mean, given that I've just linked to a series of lectures, Lisa, I don't think yours is particularly any more nerdier than mine, but I think, um, (laughs) Leanne, are you going to break the habit? Are you going to do something a bit more fun? Uh, Well, yeah, it's it's fun. Um, but it's still um, about the topics that we've been talking about tonight. <laughs> it's fun because it's actually going to take you about six hours less to read than <laughs> um, the ones that you've recommended. Uh, this one is written by Dr Stacey Fox and it is the conversation article, which is time for Australia to provide preschool education for all three-year-olds. And it really is just running a very similar kind of um, discussion to ours tonight, but there are little graphs and there's even some pictures there. So it's a, a nice one with plenty of links through it to, for you to get caught in the labyrinth of the internet. An early childhood development wormhole. That's right. Mm. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, thank you both very much. So um, we'll wrap it up. I want to say um, again, if you 
one of the best things you can do if you're enjoying the podcast and want to show us your support, one of the best things you can do is rate and review us on the iTunes store. Um, it really does help um, other early childhood professionals and colleagues find the podcast and means we can sort of broaden the conversation pool we're having. And as I sort of promised last week, if, if anyone who puts up a review, I'll, I'll give them a bit of a shout out. And we're, I want to really thank, um, and I really apologize if I mispronounced the name, but it's Malia Lafferty who left us a lovely um, review on the iTunes store and, and particularly talked about how uh, the these sort of podcasts and these sort of conversations can fill the gap in the ability to attend conferences and professional development, which is a bit of a part of the chat we were having today. So Malia, thank you very much. And if uh, for anyone who chucks up a review, I'll make sure we call them out next week. But that's it for another week. We've gone a bit long, but we hope it, you know, it's, it's been engaging and interesting. So if you want to find, if you want to give us any feedback or talk about the podcast, uh, you can find us on Twitter at early edu show. So early edu show, all one word. Um, you can find me personally at Liam McNicholas, all one word. And me at Lisa J. Bryant, all one word. And me at Leanne M. Gibbs, three, all one word. So please feel free to get in touch with any of us. We'd love to hear your feedback and we'd love to um, hear topics you like discussed or, you know, or, or call us I've out. I've just of... had a message on LinkedIn from someone saying they'd like to be a guest on one of our podcasts. Oh. So maybe that's something we can think of in future as well. Hey, if you think you can be as uh, cool and as exciting as us, that's a pretty <laughs> tough gig. Please feel free to get in. Please feel free to get in touch. Bring your bring your Excel graphs and your data, and we'll uh, we'll we'll give you a bit of an interview. But um, yeah, look, that's fantastic. So a bit of uh, a bit of live feedback there. But we we'll see you next week. And uh, so it's goodbye from me and me and me. And me.